0: Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends and feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, lots of chatter about a coalition government after the next Canadian election. Your thoughts? It's been a year since recreational cannabis has been legalized. Everybody good? And the UK and the European Union have struck a deal for Brexit. But will the rest buy in? It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. How large a possibility is there for a uh, my number, uh, minority government or a coalition government come Monday, election day, of course, October 21st. It's funny because there was lots of chatter about this about a week ago. And then all of a sudden, everybody kind of went mum about it and, and got back to their original uh, campaign and platform to talk more about all of this dr. AJ Parishram Ram is with us uh, assistant professor Department of International uh, Department of International Studies at Dalhousie University and with us now AJ thanks for the call much appreciated
1: oh yeah my pleasure thanks for the invite
0: so it's it's kind of odd because uh, at the latter part of last week we started to hear uh, rumblings about coalition and the and the words started popping up and people wondering wow is this really a possibility and leaders were chatting about it then all of a sudden this this week, everybody's kind of gone mum and back to their original, uh, original campaign. Is it wise for a leader, any leader, to talk about a coalition in the days before an election?
1: I think in our political culture, and this is kind of an unfortunate aspect of our political culture, coalition is kind of like a, a dirty word that people don't want to talk about because we have this expectation of majority governments. So we, we kind of want this kind of semi-elected kingship sort of thing going on for about four or five years. That's what we're used to. That's what we've come to expect. But coalitions are actually quite common, and they're healthy for democracy. But what I think we saw, especially with Jagmeet Singh, uh, I think it was Sunday, he kind of mentioned the idea that, well, you know, we're not going to work with the conservatives, but we might be open to working with the liberals, and then... Andrew Shears campaign blew up about that, talking about, you know, this coalition is already forming and brought us back to almost like the the Harper years back in 2011 when, uh, if you recall, everybody was talking about the, the evil coalition between this party and this party and the separatists, et cetera, et cetera. People don't understand, I think, and appreciate the value that coalition governments can actually bring to the fore.
0: What is the value?
1: well it forces people to actually speak to one another in parliament which is kind of one of the 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 main things about coalition governments uh... it also allows for uh, different kinds of marginalized perspectives that would never have a say in a majority parliament to uh... not just hold people's feet to the fire but actually bring about constructive ideas so for example if you have a coalition government where and i'm not trying to suggest that coalitions are just the be-all end-all you know they have a lot of limitations as well but if you end up in a situation where you have, you know, extra Greens, extra uh, New Democrats or what, what have you, they're going to be in there working in committees as well. And that's where most of the kind of nuts and bolts of policy gets hammered out is in committees. And, and the critical thing there is that a government that doesn't have a majority can't just stack all the important committees with, uh, the, right amount, with the amount of people to give them a sort of mm-hmm. absolute control over that so it allows it allows smaller parties to make bigger kind of inroads in terms of the actual nuts and bolts of policy which i think particularly in light of the issues facing us a climate emergency you know the idea of national pharmacare all these different kinds of issues that if you look at it probably the majority of canadians are interested in but if you compare that to the two big parties it's not like You know, the central issues for for either of them, and in particular, not the central issue for the conservatives, who, if the last poll I saw uh, is accurate, it's kind of leaning towards them forming a minority government.
0: Uh, What about the perception that uh, it provides lots of opinion, lots of representation, but nothing gets done?
1: Well, I think that it's just historically not true, you know. Like we we developed our uh healthcare system, you know, largely with the influence of the uh, of the then quite marginal NDP perspective working with uh, with uh, I believe it was the Pearson government at the time to kind of get that going. Uh we've also had, you know, what ends up happening is that the progress that happens in a minority government can easily just get subsumed into the the way we historically remember whoever the prime minister was at the time we still have this kind of like big leader kind of syndrome in the way we look at politics as if the leader is the most important thing uh... and of course they they like to remind us of that during elections over and over and over again but if we have a democracy and the purpose of a democracy is to deliberate amongst people who are chosen by, uh, by others, by their peers, then, you know, disagreements, uh, that, 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 all these kind of things that are oftentimes seen as uh, a limitation on the effectiveness of government, I would argue, you know, slowing down the pace of that decision-making on critical issues is actually the enactment of democracy. Because democracy isn't just about, you know, ramming pipe, pipelines down people's throats. It's about taking the time to do proper consultations, for example, so that you don't do that. And that's something, regardless of which party, we've only 152 years, we've only ever had two parties form governments in this country at the federal level. And uh, basically neither of these two parties have ever done an adequate job of uh, consulting with, with people, whether that's the province of Quebec and the way that they don't want to ha- and I don't want to make this all about pipelines, it's about much, much more than pipelines, mm-hmm. but... You know, whether it's a provincial issue, whether it's like, um, you know, an indigenous political issue, whether it's another regional issue, like slowing down the pace and saying, you know, we need to think about these different perspectives. That's the whole point of having different parties that uh, are capable of speaking to those issues in the parliament. But in a majority situation... The government can simply choose to ignore that. You know, if we look at the issue of electoral reform in the last parliament, that was one of the cornerstone of the liberal platform. It's why they probably swept so many parts, you know, Toronto, they swept Atlantic Canada. That, that wasn't because people just love Justin Trudeau, you know. He wants us to believe that. The liberals want us to believe that. But it was because people bought into what he was promising when he was, you know, a distant third-party leader at the time. He thought he could just say all these things. And I don't want to, you know, this isn't, I don't personally care about who's ultimately going to form the government, but the point I want to make is that um, in failing to deliver the electoral reform that was promised, in a way the Prime Minister has sowed the seeds of his own uh, potential collapse. If,
0: if that there. was such a big issue, then why are we talking about a minority government? I mean, shouldn't he be
1: just right. defeated? Well, you know, this is this is. You know,
0: I certainly agree with your point that uh, you know a lot of promises have been made. Well, it's it's overpromising, underperforming on on many issues. But do do you think reform is that much of a of of a a sticking point here? Do you think uh, Mm. a, a reform, election reform, was that big of an issue for Canadians? Because I'm thinking the reason that he got away with forgetting all about it was because people didn't care.
1: Right. I mean, and it's easy. It's easy to 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 interpret it that way, right? And I think it's because there are so few logical inputs for citizens to articulate their real perspective on on. The so policy. where do you think
0: electoral reform fits on you know top ten things of 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 what people are looking for in the next election? I mean, it, you know, it's usually yeah. Um, uh, affordability, climate change, mm-hmm. uh, health care, such? Where do you think electoral reform fits on this?
1: I think that electoral reform, realistically, and it depends on the demographic of Canadians yeah. you're talking about, right? So if you're talking about millennials, uh, of which I'm barely a member, but if you're if you are talking about uh, millennials, you know, I think electoral reform is a really major one, probably like number three. The climate emergency is probably top top issue, affordability for sure. Pharmacare and electoral reform, probably right around the same area, Uh, nation-to-nation relationship building. But then
0: why don't we hear more about electoral reform? I mean, we do hear it from certain groups, but again, we certainly nowhere near climate change, nowhere near any of the other issues.
1: Well, I think it's because climate change, uh, especially nowadays, and it wasn't this way 10, 15 years ago, is an easy thing to talk about because we're going through it right now. Like, I'm sitting here in my office in the dark talking to you because the university lost power from the storm that we're having in Halifax right now. Uh, it's, it's, it's just, you can't ignore it because it's right up in your face. But the issue is, a lot of Canadians don't understand the nuts and bolts the, uh, of, of how our electoral system works, how our parliament works. And uh, if you don't understand that, then it's really easy for someone to just come around and say, well, why would you want a coalition? Why would you want a minority when people have actually voted for uh, the person who has a plurality? And I think that's a major point uh, is, is this idea that, you know, we have this expectation. I saw Andrew Scheer release something this morning saying we expect that if we have a plurality of seats that we will be the government. But there's no condition like that in the Constitution that suggests that. What we say in our Constitution is the party that controls, or the person, not even the party, the person that controls the majority of loyalty within the House of Commons is the Prime Minister, which means the first among equals. And that person then appoints a cabinet. But conventionally and culturally, we've we've said, okay, if, if you have, you know, uh, say 40% of the seats and the next party has thirty eight percent of the seats it's up to the forty percent person to be the prime minister but that's actually not the case and uh, i would argue that it's democratic particularly in in the context of a climate emergency or what have you to have uh... parties that might collectively represent sixty percent of the popular vote get together and say actually although this guy has two seats more than us he doesn't get to represent the government and, and you, I know it's a bit said, controversial. Yeah, but. no,
0: no. I hear. I mean, you know, we, we've lived through them. Uh, are are there, you, you talked about limitations. What are the limitations of a minority or well, coalition? Well,
1: of the limitations is that the government can fall, right? So there's a little bit more instability.
0: There's usually another election relatively quickly behind relatively
1: it. Relatively quickly. Yeah. Although it doesn't have to be. Like Stephen Harper governed, you know, effectively for... Uh, I believe it was four years of his term in, in minority, correct me if I'm wrong there. Yeah, close to it. Close mm-hmm. to it, if not there. Um, the other kind of issue is that, you know, in principle, especially if you have a situation of a very delicate minority, is that you can sometimes have a very small party, a marginal party. So Let's say, for our exa- example, if, if uh, the People's Party of Canada got two seats and and sheer was two seats away uh, from having a majority that would give a tremendous amount of power to a party that is so marginal and so like profoundly yeah. violent you know mm-hmm. in, in their views to give them like a disproportionate amount of power over over the, the the policy direction that is technically speaking a risk but i think in the canadian context it's not it's not a huge risk and also we can be much more creative about how we think about coalitions which is something that i've been writing about lately that they don't necessarily have to just be this thing cobbled together after an election based on how everyone's kind of suboptimum choice has turned out rather parties could decide to get together ahead of time and come to an arrangement that they could deliver to the voters we can't do that in this election There's not enough time left but i hope that in the next election which will probably come sooner than later uh, you know, parties can think critically and proactively about how to address these huge policy issues uh, that are affecting so many Canadian voters. So
0: perhaps the next time we go to the polls, uh, if you love this party, you'll vote for them first, but there's other op- There's also option two and three.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. We need to a- do and
0: having right. the parties admitting that or, or at least talking about that prior to votes.
1: I think so. Like, really what we need is a, is a bit more literacy about how democracy actually operates, what democracy is, what the limits of electoral democracy are. You know, a vote is important, but a vote should just be one tool in your democratic toolkit. Uh, and if it stops at the ballot, then really, you know, we might as well just pick kings for four or five years and go home. And I don't think anybody really wants to do that. I just don't think that we... Fully understand the range of options that we that we have at our disposal.
0: Uh, coalition has always seemed to be talking about uh, over the last uh, certainly week or so. Um, could we see a surprise here? Could we see something totally
1: opposite? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that's the kind of part of the exciting part of watching an election. Closely.
0: And does talking about coalition actually change the way people vote? Is that it, it, getting back to what we were talking about before? Uh, we want this party for a majority, a majority, but this is the second and third choice. Does that, does that take away from a possible majority?
1: Uh, It might. It might. You know, it's kind of like a kind of like a strategic choice. uh, Yeah. Strategic voting. Yeah. Yeah, And strategic voting. It always anytime, basically anytime anyone says anything publicly about an election, it it has the impact of affecting the way an undecided voter may or may not vote. Uh, And really, there's there's always going to be a kind of margin of error within polling. Uh, And even that in and of itself kind of uh, creates this kind of uh, confusion amongst voters where where I'm a bit different like I kinda come from a. I I understand why people are saying don't vote strategically uh, because we're not gonna change the system if you keep voting strategically but I also completely understand why people vote strategically I've almost always voted strategically maybe the last two elections would be an exception to that and it's because our structure is set up to only give us a negative vote we only have a veto against our worst possible option But if the parties were willing to work together ahead of the election and come up with a plan, a power-sharing plan, that they could deliver to voters ahead of time and say, look, here's an actual alternative that speaks to our overlapping areas of interest, I actually think Canadians would, would really appreciate that, and they would probably reward that. And there are steps that could be taken to ensure that that doesn't become, you know, corrupted. Dr. A.J.
0: Paris-Ram has been with us, Assistant Professor, Department of International Studies, Dalhousie University, talking about coalitions. Uh, A.J., thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated.
1: Thanks very much for your call, and uh, good luck at the polls. You too. Listening
0: to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML.
1: All right, let's move on.
0: Uh, One year since uh, cannabis, recreational cannabis, was legalized, uh, many thought the world was coming to an end. I remember having this discussion too with somebody when uh, they offered uh, beer in grocery stores. Everybody thought, oh my goodness, the world is coming to an end. Every day is going to be like New Year's Eve. And I remember uh, saying to experts, is this a lot like that? People are just expecting the worst. And I. I think that's the case. Uh, At the end of the day, how successful was this rollout? Is there things we could have done differently? And how do we move on to the second phase? Let's bring in Brad Polis, instructor Ted Rogers School of Management, Ryerson University and is with us now. Brad, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Good afternoon, Scott. So your thoughts after one year?
2: Well, you know, there's so many different ways that you can examine this file. So you could look at it from the point of view of, say, the broader society. And you alluded to the fact that the sky didn't fall. And really, it's almost, with the exception that, that I think you probably smell a little more cannabis when you're out and about these days. Um, it really hasn't been, a, there hasn't been a noticeable change in our lives. Um, you know, from the point of view of a consumer, I think it's been sort of a, you know, a mixed, um, a mixed experience. So the, the the pricing and the product formulations aren't exactly what people expected, course, that's going to change come near Christmas time. From the point of view, the view of the industry, you know, there's lots of different ways to unpack that, too. But with the way the stocks have been going lately, it's uh, probably the industry would only get about a, a, B, a B grade from me. Why is that? Well, I think that there's, there's uh, certain things that they could have done differently to, you know, to get ready for uh, legalization a year ago. Now, is this government
0: uh, or producers?
2: producers. So they certainly had lots of notice that, that um, legalization was coming and they certainly didn't get product formulations right out of the gate. I also think that pricing is, is too high. And while the government has a lot to say about pricing because they, they affect it through taxation and through the, um, uh, the influence that they have as the distributor, uh, the licensed producers still can set their own prices. And I, I think that you know they're still a little high, especially in the medical side.
0: One of the main reasons for government doing this was to get it out of the hands of the black market. It's legalized and then distribution was quite limited, still is, many say. Um, Is this just making it legal and helping the black market by uh, uh, taking away the stigma and yet um, uh, uh, restricting availability? Or Not not by choice, but certainly that's the way it happened.
2: Yeah, I think that's pretty insightful, actually. Uh, Yeah, to a large degree, I believe that's true and especially given the last year that the black market has had several advantages, um, numbers of points of presence, the, um, the the different product formulations that were available in the illicit market that were not available in the, in the legal market, a pricing advantage, um, you know, is sort of out of all of those things, and it's uh, it's a little bit of a boon for them. Now, I think given the fact that we've got a couple of things happening, one is we have these new product formulations coming, so that's edibles, drinkables, topical products um, for, for your cannabis enthusiasts, things like uh, concentrates and the like. Um, that, you know that's going to help a fair bit. The other thing is there's going to be a lot of cannabis available over the next couple of years, given all these people, oh, sorry all of these companies that are um, going out and getting licenses to, to grow cannabis or otherwise process it there's going to be a lot of competition in the space, and that's going to drive prices down. And that will help the legal market pull customers out of the illicit market and into the legal framework.
0: Uh, Is the government going to allow producers to pass that savings on to the customer? I was just reading somewhere, and I wish I had the article in front of me, I don't right now, where a Quebec firm uh, was selling it in bulk, uh, 28 grams, and that they were going to undercut the black market price, and that was their marketing.
2: Yeah, that's a re- relatively recent announcement and you're absolutely right. The company you're talking about is called Hexo and they're the, also the one that have partnered up with Molson Coors to do beverages. So uh, interesting company and one of the kind of top four or five in the com- country today. Um, so yeah, that's, uh, I mean, we, we will, we will see that sort of thing happen. Um, you know, that I don't think that cannabis is going to be all that attractive to the real cannabis enthusiasts because right. so, it's likely going to be lower grade.
0: Uh, How much uh, still? How much of an impact does that make when it's it's obviously the company's obviously making a statement by providing a product that's quite a bit cheaper?
2: Well, I think it makes a statement, and it, it does it does signal to everyone, and hopefully the government included, that pricing is an issue. And your 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 question two ago that I really didn't answer, which is how much influence does the government have over pricing? Well, the truth is, you know, at the at the retail level, they have a fair bit because in every case across the country. The the provincial or territorial governments are the distribution arm for cannabis, so they kind of set the input price for every retailer. They set the price retailers buy at, so it would be crazy to argue that they don't have any influence over the end price, because they obviously create some sort of a floor there.
0: How cheap can they
3: sell it?
2: Well, I mean, it ultimately ultimately comes down, I guess, to how cheaply can a licensed producer grow it and sell it into the system. Uh, That. You know, the, it's really tough to say, but estimates in the kind of $2 a gram would be around the lowest anybody might be able to achieve these days for indoor-grown cannabis. Outdoors, is quite a bit cheaper, but in Canada, you really only get one harvest there. So, you know, you'd be starting there and then have, having to add markups all the all the way along for each of the parties.
0: Are there provinces that have done this better than others?
2: Yes. Absolutely. Um, and in general, I would give a much better grade to the Western provinces than to the Eastern ones if we put the border between Manitoba and Ontario as, as that dividing line. Uh, Manitoba and Alberta have done a really good job, uh, both at the distribution level and also getting stores licensed and opened. Um, can, uh, Ontario, your, your listeners will be quite familiar with what's happened here. So we're at a grand total of around 25 stores.
0: So what has what has the West done better than than what the East has done? Then, well, the West didn't put a cap.
2: So Alberta is is the one that I think everybody should kind of look to for you know for success. And there's over 300 licenses have been granted. I, I can't say exactly how many stores are open, but it's well over 100. It may be over 200. And um, the reason is that the only cap that the government really put was a market share cap, just simply saying that no individual company can have more than 15% of the total market. And other than that, the market's unfettered. And isn't it amazing what happens when you let markets work?
0: Hmm. Um, It was said in Ontario this was due to a supply issue, uh, the amount of outlets. We remember we had a change in government during the midst of all of this. Uh, one government was going to do it through an LCBO-type system with the Liberals, and then the Conservatives decided to open it up, but then pulled back on the amount of licenses. Uh, and you, you know, you've said that the supply has been replenished. Uh, is there any reason to have the number of stores that we have?
2: The low number? Yes. No, no not, none whatsoever. And in fact, again, and really partly comes down to personal politics, of course, but the the government, in my opinion, had no business setting a cap. Let the market work. If a big company like Fire and Flower wants to set up a store and have no cannabis, but have wave the flag and sell grinders and talk to people, why is it the government's job to tell them that they can't? So, you know, I think if the government had just simply allowed um, capable companies to apply for and be granted a license, we'd be in a much different place than we are today.
0: More criminal activity when it is that open as it is in Alberta. Not, there's
2: no evidence to suggest that that's the case. No,
0: not at all. Um, are we naive to think that we can eliminate or reduce the black market?
2: Not naive to think that we can reduce it. I think to the, the notion of eliminating it any time over the next, say, five or so years is uh, likely, you know, Pollyanna, uh, we're more likely to see it greatly diminished. And it will ultimately come down to, uh, because there's not much of a stigma with dealing with the black market within the Canic, you know the canic enthusiast community we'll call it, then uh, it's going to take competition on product formulation, on price, on availability, and quality. And How is the there. government
0: going to uh, going to stop itself from taxing this when you think of the taxes on alcohol, the taxes on cigarettes, um, why is this any different other than, of course, the black market has al- already been, been quite established? Um, but will we get to the point where, uh, you know, very much like the LCBO, everybody just buys their, their product there? I think
2: one day that will indeed be the case. Yes. Uh, this is a little different in that it's a plant for, for those people that just consume flour. It's a plant that you can grow yourself. So I think there, and of course you can make beer yourself, but it's nowhere near as easy as growing a cannabis yeah. plant. And it's not like so, people
0: are saying, hey, come over here uh, and buy my beer and wine instead of going to the store and right. getting a reputable yeah, product. Yeah,
2: exactly. We, we haven't had that. Uh, but if you, know, if you look to alcohol as a proxy for what will happen with cannabis, the government was smart and did not overtax it in the early days. They waited before they got greedy, and I think that will—that's what'll happen here. The government will likely—they probably won't eliminate the taxes that are there. I'd like to see the excise tax go, especially on medical cannabis. It's the only medicine we tax in Canada. But outside of that, you know, I don't think they'll, they'll reduce the taxes. But I—I I, I think they'll likely resist the urge to add any more.
0: What about the uh, the issue of tobacco versus uh, pot? Uh, twenty years from now, where will this discussion be? We were, you know we seem almost giddy about all of this right now, despite the lack of of real solid research. In twenty years from now, will there be big campaigns telling people to stop this just like smoking?
2: It's possible, but there's there's nowhere near the evidence to suggest that cannabis is cancer causing the way tobacco is. Um tobacco has no medical uses whatsoever if we discovered tobacco today the fda would make it a schedule one or sorry the dea would make it a schedule one drug you know it has no medical use and has uh, capability to cause harm and uh is likely to be abused those are the criteria well if we discovered tobacco today we would most likely stick it on schedule one there's no way it would be legal um I i could see actually us one day making tobacco illegal i can't see it happening with cannabis
0: Hmm. Uh, has con- uh, consumption gone up since legalization?
2: Not much. Uh, there's, there's, uh, there's anecdotal evidence. There's not very much hard evidence yet, but um, the anecdotal evidence is that there's been some experimentation. But just like in Colorado, California, and Washington, it, uh, legalization brings very few new los- users. It uh, it really just brings some of the, the old ones out of the illicit market and into the legal one.
0: Uh, edibles. Talk about that. What's happened today? Is it are they legal as of today? But just not available. Is that the, the situation? In a
2: sense. So so there, there's a provision in the in the regulations that says that you have to inform Health Canada and and give them 60 days notice of your intention to sell one of these products. And the first day you're allowed to do that is today. So that that it puts a 60 day sort of delay clock in. You know, just this one time. Um, you know. And, and what's the purpose that. of that? Why that? Uh, Health Canada wants to review all of these products and make sure that they're comfortable with them.
0: Right. So, in other words, you can't produce them until it's legal, and then once it's legal, you can produce them, then we have to inspect them.
2: Uh, Not so much inspect as just approve the concept.
0: Right. Okay. So, uh, it's a case of having to run through the system before they can come out the other end and be sold.
2: Yeah. Not the actual product, but the concept.
0: Right. Uh, When will we start to see edibles?
2: So, around two months from today. So, mid-December. Um, 60 days from today. I think it's December 16th.
0: Where now. will we think. see them? Will be they be in different stores than what we have now, or will they just be sold in the same no, sort they're, of store?
2: They're, they're, they're classed as cannabis, so they will be in the same locations where you buy your flour and your oil today, and they will be in no other locations. Uh, as of now, um, down the road, I could definitely see that getting relaxed. We could see maybe some of these products becoming available in drugstores and elsewhere, for sure.
0: Uh, how, um, what are your predictions with edibles and the market I- once they are introduced? Will they take off? Will they be slow? Will they overtake uh, dried cannabis? Where do you see this in the marketplace?
2: They'll be popular, but they will not overtake dried cannabis. Um, that's not, not anytime soon. There's no evidence from other markets to suggest that. And edibles are highly available today. Um, most cannabis enthusiasts consume their cannabis in more than one way just depending on the, the need state and the circumstances. So
0: any different consuming it uh, one way to the other, eating it uh, versus smoking it?
2: Vastly. Vastly different, yes. So the, the onset, the amount of time it takes for the psychoactive effects to take effect, much longer with an edible. This is one of the dangers because um, one could possibly not think they've taken a high enough dose just simply because they haven't let enough time lapse and then they take a further dose and possibly a third one and, and then end up not overdosing in the typical sense, but but taking too much cannabis right. in the sense that they'll have a, an anxiety attack and, and possibly end up in the hospital.
0: Is the same product that people are smoking they're using to for edibles?
2: Uh, it starts out the same. So you, you take the flour and then you just extract uh, oil and then you might further process it before ultimately putting it into some sort of a a food product or a topical... So it's container. not
0: just a case of grinding up weed and
2: putting it into cookie batter. Oh, oh, gosh, no. No, no, no. It's it's processed before that into oil in general.
0: And is this something people would do at home?
2: You can Like growing, sure.
0: or is it way too much? Is it like making beer or wine? It's, it's a bit more complicated.
2: For a, for a beverage, I would say it's probably way too complicated. Uh, but certainly for an edible, anything that's going into a baked good, People have been doing that at home for decades.
0: yeah. I guess nothing new there, but it, but 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 it, it's it's more of a process to bake it than it is to to smoke it.
2: Absolutely, sure. If to smoke it, all you have to do is dry it and grind it and roll it.
0: And for baking it, excuse my so, ignorance.
2: So, oh well, it, it depends on what you're making. But let's take a say a cookie. Then, then what you might do typically is take some butter and put the cannabis in the butter for some time under some heat. And what that does is it actually infuses all of those cannabinoids, not just the ones that make you high, but all the other ones, uh, into the butter. And then you can just use that butter for anything. You put it on your toast if you like.
0: Uh, What about the education process here?
2: That's a big part of what has to happen. Uh, Because of the potential danger with edibles, and we've just got all these different new product formulations available, uh, creams and the like, things that we haven't really seen a lot of in in the illicit market, It's going to be very important for that education piece to be done. and It's one of my concerns because we really handcuff the people at the store level in terms of what they're allowed to say. They're allowed to make very few claims about efficacy or any of that sort of thing with respect to what a product does, how it does it, and all of that. So I'd like to see those handcuffs taken off so that those people, those knowledgeable people in the stores can um, impart that knowledge to their customers.
0: So how is this all going to change in Ontario? I understand there's been stores, uh, another lottery held and and more stores awarded. When will we see those?
2: So those will start coming on actually fairly soon in the next couple of months um, and then it's highly likely that after that we'll have more of an open process. The other thing that's interesting in Ontario is that the government is signaling that they may get out of the distribution business. So they may not act as that intermediary between the licensed producers and the retailers. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that would make a lot of, you know, entities in the industry happy. And if you look at Manitoba, it's quite interesting. Manitoba doesn't the, the government does not touch the product, other than from a tax point of view. They make sure they get their markup, but they don't. They don't burden themselves with the need to actually touch the product. Uh, I'm operate.
0: playing devil's advocate here. People would say that then you would lose control. There, there's too much room there for black market. There's too much room there for, for shenanigans. Uh,
2: the industry is highly regulated. You really have to account for all the cannabis that you produce and where it goes, and then if you're a retailer, where it came from. I, I don't buy that. I think that you know, you're you, as long as you're subject to audit. There's there's no reason to think that taking a government distributor out of the picture is going to increase the black market.
0: We've certainly seen situations here in Ontario where people growing too many plants. Is that the industry getting out of hand or is that government keeping a handle on it?
2: <laughs> little of both. So you're talking about licensed folks, not not people growing five plants at home instead of four, but, but licensed companies growing plants that are not licensed. Right. There's been very little of that. Um, Thanks to a whistleblower, the Health Canada was made aware of it, did an audit and clamped down and has suspended the license of that company. That's exactly what I think has to happen. Uh, I also think they should get the maximum million dollar fine. You know, for a lot of cannabis companies, a million dollars is actually a lot of money. Uh, We think of companies like Canopy Growth and Aurora that are huge and, and we talk about numbers in the billions, but for the majority of cannabis companies, For their ability to write a million-dollar check and not have it hurt, there's very few.
4: Mm.
0: Brad Polis has been with us. Instructor, Ted Rogers, School of Management, Ryerson University. Brad, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Coming up, still going to talk about uh, Brexit and other things happening throughout the world. Uh, Wanted, though, to squeeze in Jack Lloyd, lawyer representing patients for access to medical marijuana. Uh, This, of course, the uh, one-year anniversary of recreational uh, legalized marijuana. He is a cannabis lawyer and activist and is with us now. Jack, thanks for the time. Much appreciated.
3: Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for having me.
0: Are laws keeping up with the new legalization and everywhere where the industry is today?
3: Uh, Well, I I think perhaps it uh, depends on what you mean by are the laws keeping up. The laws are slowly relaxing um, and the exemptions are expanding for recreational cannabis users. Um, The rules around access to medical cannabis have remained the same ultimately. uh, Why is
0: that? Uh, Specifically because we started this with medical marijuana. That's how this whole industry started uh, and and obviously for reasons to help people. So why would that not be the first to adjust?
3: Uh, It's unclear at present. Um, The federal government has consistently stated that they have uh, policy objectives related to certain restrictions contained in part 14 of the federal legislation. That's what relates specifically to medical cannabis, but um, they remain un- unclear for the majority of, of patients. So uh, in a sense, there's a wider variety of products that are lawfully available for the medical cannabis uh, patients. Um, under recreational cannabis, uh, they have uh, today, and, and I think that that's part of why today is significant, one year uh, after cannabis was legalized recreationally, they are now um, introducing their regulations relating to cannabis derivatives that can be lawfully available to the um, the recreational market, and that includes edibles as well as certain um, vaporizable uh, derivative products. <clears throat> so, in a sense, uh, um, the the rights of medical cannabis patients were hard fought in the courts, um, but the the privileges of the recreational cannabis community uh, has essentially piggybacked on uh, that set of rights. And so, oddly enough, recreational cannabis users uh, now have uh, a greater variety of access and modes of access than medical cannabis patients, Uh, most notably uh, the fact that uh, a medical cannabis patient cannot attend at a a storefront or a pharmacy, preferably uh, to access their, their medicinal cannabis. And that's a, a significant concern for patients because obviously many of them don't have fixed addresses. Many of them aren't able to make online purchases or many of them simply aren't able to grow it for themselves. So mm. uh, again, I, I don't want to sound overly myopic in regards to the situation, but uh, uh, we've done well. We've moved uh, 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 some significant steps forward, but a lot remains to be done. And I think uh, what's also important is that the regulations released now for uh, recreational edible cannabis products, um, nothing's going to be available until December. So, send, mm-hmm. uh, a lot of journalists sort of keep saying that edibles are now legal. Uh, if the edible product doesn't have an excise task stamp and doesn't come from, a licensed retailer it still remains uh technically unlawful right so it's a lot of hiccups on the road to sensible regulation
0: is it a matter of time before medical marijuana is not taxed
3: uh that's a very serious um issue relating to section seven of the charter in my view uh, in my view the the taxation placed on it is representative of a a broader legislative goal of getting rid of medical cannabis entirely, which is very concerning. Um, it, it also uh, is part of this government policy of stating that, you know, cannabis is not truly medicine. So they've, they're have they essentially saying the courts have forced us to regulate medicinal cannabis. Um, so we're going to tax it like any other product. We're not going to acknowledge that it's a, a medical product that a w- large number of people Require access to. Do I think that uh, a challenge on the basis of um, excise tax uh, causing it to be too expensive for patients? I think that that's a winner. I think that, uh, um, but I also think that uh, given time, the federal government may see the light and make some sensible changes in regards to those significant cost barriers for patients.
0: Do you actually think they'll get rid of the medical
3: system? I think that that's part of their goal. Um, And why is that? There's a lot of uh, regulatory oversight that's required from the federal. It isn't actually required, but on the federal government's logic, it's required. So it's difficult for them to regulate it. It's also um, it it is vulnerable to very serious constitutional scrutiny. Hmm. And in my view, they're trying to avoid. uh, having any more court rulings that oblige them to change their, uh, regulatory system, particularly because there's a lot of very large, uh, multinational corporations participating in this industry now. And, and I think that in a sense, there's a, there's a goal to uh, protect their market share in a sense. Mm. So again, um, ultimately what patients want is a broader ability to access and safe places to access. They don't necessarily want to attend at a a recreational store to access what for them is medicine. So those are the main live issues for uh, the
0: community. Jack Lloyd has been with us, lawyer representing patients for access to medical marijuana and a cannabis lawyer and activist. Jack, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated.
3: My pleasure. Thanks for having me. You're listening to the
0: Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. The United Kingdom and European Union have struck a deal, an outline Brexit deal. Could this be true? Uh, This is days after intense seesaw negotiations. It still needs to be ratified, though. Does that mean anything? Uh, What's different between this deal and the old? What's new? Uh, Let's bring in Ian Lee, Spratt School of Business, Carleton University. He is with us now. Ian, thanks for the time. Much appreciated my pleasure scott the difference between the new deal and the old what's changed here
4: um it's not huge there are some differences i've been um reading intensively (laughs) since this was announced um and to balance it i've been reading both the guardian which is a very significantly left liberal newspaper against the telegraph a paper that used to be owned by conrad black uh, which is known as a more conservative uh, paper and i've been reading both and um uh, just to get, you know, trying to get uh, both points of view, if I can call it that. Um just very quickly, let me just throw the numbers up before we go into the differences. The Guardian says he's he, Boris Johnson, is 20 votes short in the House of uh, getting it passed. They're not predicting he'll find the 20. It's going to be very tough. The Telegraph, the UK Telegraph newspaper claims he's 30 votes shy. So they're somewhere between 20 and 30 votes he's got to find uh, to to get it passed this Saturday. This will be the fourth time that this is being voted on in parliament was three times under Elizabeth, uh, excuse me, under Ms. May, I'm sorry, <laughs> and uh, the former prime minister, uh, mm-hmm. May. And uh, what's interesting, Scott, and then I'll get to the details. Um, the first time that Ms. May put it through a couple of years ago, um, she lost very significantly. Uh, and then the second time, the vote uh, uh, dropped very dramatically. And the third, so the vote kept going down uh, uh, for each time. And so the point that I'm going at, I mean, here, I've got the numbers. The first time it was defeated by 230 votes a year and a half ago. The second time it went through, uh, the vote against, uh, it only lost by 149. The third time, which was last March, it was only defeated by 58 votes. And right now, The Guardian and The Telegraph say that he's somewhere between 20 and 30 votes shy. So the trend is towards support for the Brexit. The fundamental difference... Is uh, The way I've read it so far is that it's the Ms. May deal, essentially the Ms. May deal from March, but with uh, uh, quite a few changes on the so-called Irish backstop and how they're going to deal with uh, Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland, and uh, essentially... The, what's proposed by Johnson to the uh, British people is that this agreement is going to, as I understand it, is going to keep Northern Ireland in sort of a state of arf and arf. And I mean by arf and arf, they're sort of going to have one foot in the European Union and one foot in the U.K. And uh, so they're going to be governed by both. Well, the U.K. proper, and I mean by that England, I guess, um, they're going to have a... Um, um, uh, a free trade agreement that's not going to be as integra- integrated as was proposed in the last deal by then Prime Minister May. So he's there's there's a little bit of, uh, for everybody there. He's hmm. been promising to not be so tightly tied to the UK to the uh, to the European Union because that's where all that uh, anger is in, in in the United Kingdom, and so the relationship. With the European Union under the Boris Johnson proposal that's now on the table, will be not as close. Um, it's going to be more distant and more of a traditional free trade agreement only than was proposed by Ms. May. Just very quickly, Scott, so everybody understands this. These aren't just buzzwords. The the Conservative, you know, it was, it was said in the papers when the when the Brexit vote first went through that oh, the British are going crazy. They're against free trade that was never ever 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 the case the brits have never been opposed to free trade they've been free traders for five hundred years what they were opposed to and still are those who are supporting brexit was the uh, people in brussels which is where the bureaucratic headquarters of the european union is the european parliament is in strasbourg france but the bureaucracy of the government of the european union if i can call it that the european commission is in brussels and they've been passing endless rules on everything from immigration to banking to the color of margarine, like they've been trying hmm. to govern as the uh, United States of America, but in, a, in Europe, but much more interventionist. And the Brits were said, look, all we want is a free trade agreement with Europe. That's yeah. all we want. Don't tell us how to live our lives, and don't tell us what European human rights are, and don't tell us about immigration. We just want a trade agreement. Well, that's what Boris Johnson's been proposing. And so as I, so far from what I've been able to glean, his, his proposal, he can actually stand up and say, look, everybody, I told you I wasn't gonna, was not going to bind us, the U.K., as tightly to the European Union as was, was the case as a full-fledged member or as was the case under the proposals by then-Prime Minister May. So he can argue he is, um, he is uh, even though he's made some compromises, Uh, He can argue he is taking people in that direction. And so he can say to the people who've been the Euroskeptics, I delivered what I promised.
0: Now, both parliaments still have to to ratify all of this. What's the chance of that? That's always been the sticking point, not coming to a deal with the EU when you think about it.
4: Uh, You're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. I mean, Parliament voted it down three times, although the margin of defeat kept shrinking every time. The last time, as I said, was that 59 votes, so that it wasn't huge like the first time. But to answer your question directly, um, I think that... I mean, there's enough, apparently there's, there's going to be, for those final 30 votes, 20 to 30 votes, there's going to be, you can bet, an incredible arm twisting going on with those MPs, and they're going to be promised all kinds of things. We can only imagine, you know, whether it's a cabinet minister or, or something, or a bridge in their riding, or God knows what. Um, and I actually think, given the trend of the vote, how it was, the the, the nays were going uh, getting smaller and smaller, I think it's maybe just barely possible that this will get through, but Scott, the point I want to make is I don't think it matters, and of course it matters, but I mean by that when I say it doesn't matter, I think he's been pre- he, Boris Johnson, has been preparing for the last three months for a snap election. Mm. And I think if he is defeated, I think on Sunday morning or Monday morning, he's going to waltz down to Buckingham Palace mm. and say, Your Majesty, I want you to dissolve Parliament and call an election. And I looked at the polls. And Corbyn, Jeremy Corbyn, the leader of the Labour Party, which is their left, liberal, NDP-type party, mm-hmm. is very unpopular. And right now, Boris Johnson is somewhere around 10, 11 points ahead. Now, in a four-way race with four political parties, uh, to have an 11-point plurality over everybody else, I mean, that's, that's a serious majority. I mean, imagine if the Liberals were 11 points ahead of the Conservatives, or mm-hmm. vice versa, in Canada in a four-way race, which we have, that will that will put you in a clear majority. So where I'm going with this, if there is a snap election because the parliament defeats it, and I predict there will be a snap election, because what else can he do? So you think this nap- will be defeated? It, it,
0: if it is defeated in parliament, right,
4: yeah. I think he'll call a snap election. Yeah. I believe he will win unless the polls change dramatically. He'll call a very short uh, snap election. He will run. And he will win, I'm predicting, and then he'll go back to the Europeans and say, okay, now, as I was saying before, I was so rudely interrupted, now I'm about to sign this deal.
0: Hmm. So, uh, if you don't want Brexit, that none of this is any good for you, you're going to keep fighting, correct?
4: That, that's right.
0: Or does, it Brexit... look, or does it look at this point that Brexit is a go? They're out.
4: Well, I think... If he
0: wins that election, if, if it collapses and then he ends up going back, I mean, it, it looks like it's leaning towards a Brexit,
4: no? That's... That that is my view. That is my view. Yeah, I think it is leaning towards Brexit. And is funny. I'm not funny, but uh, interesting. Uh, coincidental. I was at a, a presentation only about two weeks ago, and uh, I got into quite a debate with the speaker. And um, um, and uh, he was predicting, you know, doom, gloom, apocalypse, now sort of thing if the Brexit goes through. And I'm not saying it's a good thing. I'm not advocating that. I'm simply saying that I think that. Um, the, all the people predicting, including Mark Carney, who've been predicting, saying, you know, the end is nigh if, if Brexit goes through, you know, we're doomed and that sort of thing. Uh, I don't agree. I do not agree. Um, this is the fifth largest economy in the world. And uh, they have a lot of advantages still. And people are going to continue to want to do business with the UK and want to go to UK and all those good, good stuff. And i I believe that they will strike, well, this is a free trade agreement with Europe, so they're still going to continue to trade with Europe. And secondly, they're going to, I think, uh, certainly Trump has said so, certainly Canada has said so, at least some of the leaders in Canada have said, we want a free trade agreement with the U.K. The Australians have said so. So my point is, is that businesses are enormously adaptive. And uh, that's the nature of business. And so the barriers that will be thrown up, and there will be barriers thrown up by Brexit, no question about it, Scott. But what I'm trying to say is companies and politicians are going to, necessity is the uh, mother of invention. And and so barriers that are thrown up, people will do workarounds very quickly. And yes, there will be disruption. Yes, there will. And yes, there will be some lost sales. But I do not believe it's going to be as massively disruptive as the Uber pessimists are predicting, and I'm saying that they will recover very quickly because there's a lot of resilience in the UK economy. This is uh, one of the oldest modern nations in the world, one of the oldest economies, the first capitalist economy in the world, going back four or five hundred years ago, and and so I don't think it's the end of the world or the end is nigh or the end of the UK. It's it's going to be disruptive for sure. Any big uh, change is disruptive. But I don't think it's uh, going to be apocalypse now. I don't predict that the, U- that the U.K. Right. is going to end up in a depression with 25 you know, percent unemployment or something. It's going to be disruptive, but disruption creates opportunities as well. And uh, I, I'm not saying where it will go. I do believe that they'll continue to trade with Europe. They will have a free trade agreement. The, the tariff barriers, because of the WTO... People are forgetting this. For the last 70 years, the WTO in successive rounds of the old GATT and now the WTO have reduced tariffs to the point that most tariffs are trivial between nations on manufactured goods. The old days of 30 percent tariffs and 50 tar- percent tariffs, they're gone. Hmm. Most tariffs are single digit, you know, 3 percent, 2 percent, 4 percent. I think the non-tariff barriers environmental standards labor standards safety and health standards they're much more uh, important today uh, than are the traditional tariff barriers trump notwithstanding than than before so where i'm i'm again i i don't i don't see this as the uh, the end of uh, the uk in any sense of the word um, it's, it's going to be disruptive but I, I don't think it's going to ruin the uh, uk economy
0: Ian Lee has been with us, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. Ian, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated.
4: My pleasure, Scott. Thank you.
0: Thank you. Uh, it'll be interesting if this can calm the waters after what has been a couple of years of very unsettled times in the United K as a result of Brexit. Uh, again, Ireland and seeing the, if this all passes uh, will, of course, be the final uh, determining factors if this all goes through or not.